Please be seated. Please open your Bibles to the book of James chapter 1. Um, or you can turn your phone on, I suppose. You'll find the notes in the bulletin. The text is on the back of the notes if you don't have a Bible. And if you're online, um, the insert is on our website. And this morning, we're to continue in the last section of James chapter 1. I'd previously thought we'd close it out, but there is so much here that actually I think we'll be taking two weeks on verses 26 and 27. In fact, all that's on the bulletin this morning might be um, a little optimistic on my part. We shall see. And, and the reason for that is this section of James is so significant and central to James's theme. In verses 19 to 27, James lays out both his central thesis, the necessity that good works, that our actions conform to our professed beliefs, and the three major areas and domains he intends to examine that in. Um, we look at the necessity. Look at verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So this is in a section talking about hearing and doing, uniting professed belief and action. And if you remember the introduction to James, I suggested that's his central theme, that true faith bears out works, trusting in God, and the three domains that James will be looking at specifically will be the tongue, our interaction with the poor and the rich, wealth and poverty, weak and the powerful, and worldliness in the world. And so in, in some senses, I really view chapter t one, and I think we're going slowly through chapter one. I, I don't think we'll be spending as many weeks in chapter two or three, is because it really sets up those central themes. It comes to a head here at the end of chapter one. So I'd like to read verses 19 through 27, have a word of prayer, and then we'll see how far we get. James chapter 1, 19 to 27. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But... Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Lord God, we would be those who hear and obey and not those who hear and forget. 
Lord, we want to practice pure and undefiled religion, not a religion that is worthless. So, Lord God, we pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and that seeing, we would not forget, that we would do, that we would be blessed in our doing, that we would please you with our service and worship. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have noticed throughout James chapter 1, James develops his thoughts synthetically. He'll take an idea from the previous chunk and use that to launch into the next chunk. The beginning of this section, verse 19, we have the greeting, the my brothers, which generally marks his divisions with an imperative, know this. And it started with, he had to know three things. It's necessary for those who claim to be born of the word of God to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then James sets about addressing each of those three things, not in the order he listed them. He first addresses anger. Last week, we looked at being slow to speak, being quick to hear, and understand that hearing means more than just hearing, but hearing, receiving, and doing, much like in the Proverbs, hear my son, your father's command. Well, verse 26 picks up on the third, slow to speak. So he's connecting the last triplet, but now that launches into a new triplet, these three marks of true religion. So this is all one synthetic developed thought. We're finishing off the last triplet of three things we must be to now three marks of true religion. As we look at the marks of true and false religion. Um, My pastor's pen coming out next week addresses the the issue of religion. I know religion as a word in English is, is falling out of favor. And perhaps that's because so often what people mean by it is purely the externals, the rituals, the the practices that can be so easily separate from an inward life. And yet, if we're going to be biblical Christians, we can't toss the word out, not as long as every translation I consulted uses the word religion here both negatively and positively. There is a worthless religion, but verse 27, there is a religion that is pure and undefiled. We need to value that. We need to esteem for that. We need to pursue that. Um, we can't simply say religion bad, relationship good. It needs to be both. <laughs> it needs to be both. You can read my pastor's pen next week to get more on those thoughts. So, James begins with the first mark, and that is a bridled tongue. A bridled tongue. If any man or any one thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, This person's religion is worthless. It's worthless. So we're going to look at this verse in three points. First, what a man thinks. What a man thinks. Really, the verb here in Greek translated means is his self-evaluation or assessment, how he regards himself, how he views himself. This is getting back to self-knowledge that we looked at last week. This isn't about evaluating others. This is about evaluating yourself. And I'm I'm assuming if you come here this morning, you come gather as a church, you have certain opinions about yourself and where you stand with the Lord. And that's all good and right. We are to do self-evaluations. 2 Corinthians 13.5 tells us, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. So it's appropriate to have some level of self-reflection, self-identification, But we're warned in Romans chapter 12, far more often will we not be too hard on ourselves, but too easy. 
Romans 12, 3. By the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Uh, the, the Bible assumes we'll be, have problems not with low self-esteem, but high self-regard. Thinking of ourselves as far better, far more faithful, far more deserving, far more pleasing than we in fact are. And so I think it's helpful then that James gives us some, some criteria for this evaluation. Um, he gives us some really clear and obvious criteria for a self-evaluation. So he begins the, the conditional clause, if anyone thinks he's religious. So he's envisioning someone who thinks, I'm religious. So he's dealing first again with the issue of self-assessment. We saw that back in our last section we were looking at last week. Verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, but he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. And we talked about how in the mirror of God's word, we are revealed to be who and what we are. Our sin is revealed to be as ugly as it is. Our, our weak obedience is shown to be that. And we can know ourselves rightly in our natural fleshly sense, our, the face of our birth. And we can hold on to that knowledge and remember who and what we are. We can go away and we can forget. And you're forgetting to think better of yourself. We don't want to think that I'm that weak, that frail, that sinful, that flawed. And so we forget. So this is back to the same idea of self-deception, self-knowledge. Now, religious, what does that mean? It's not a word that has much Old Testament background. However, it is used a few times in the New Testament, and I think we can give a succinct summary of it, saying it's faithful devotion to or, and serving God, or a God, because it's used of both the true faith and other religions. So the Apostle Paul can speak of himself this way. Um, they have known for a long time, Acts 26.5, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. In a negative sense, in Colossians 2.3, this word is used by Paul describing those who want to burden others with laws and customs and things to do. They have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So the word can be used positively and negatively just as James uses it here. It tends to focus on the external, the outward, rites, rituals, and observances. And make no mistake, if you're a Christian trying to obey Christ, there are rites, rituals, and observances for you to partake in. We, we have a Ritual meal that symbolizes the Lord's death and his coming. We have a ritual baptism that marks our entrance into the faith. We gather and we sing songs together. This is a religion. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. And true, there is bad religion. There's false religion, just as James recognizes. So he means religious. This person is evaluating themselves and thinking, I am, relatively speaking, faithfully, Devoted to and serving God. That's a good goal to have. There's nothing wrong in this goal. The problem isn't, don't think such things about yourself. Rather, think these things truly. So the man evaluates himself, thinks of himself, and says, I am serving God faithfully. I'm devoted to God faithfully. But then we look beyond what he thinks to what he actually does. Does two things. 
does two things. First, does not bridle his tongue. In Greek, this is a participle. The concept is simultaneously. He's thinking one thing and he's doing another. He's not bridling, restraining his tongue. This word for bridle only occurs here. And if you turn over to James 3, verse 2, in a very similar context about the tongue... We all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Picture of bridle is of restraint. You put in a horse's mouth to hold it back, to make it go where you want it to go, to direct it, to exercise control over it. So here's this man thinking, I'm faithfully serving God, but what he's not doing is exercising any restraint, any control, any self-discipline over his tongue. James doesn't even identify what things he should be restraining. He assumes that for all of us, we will need this. No one is going to grow in the faith such that they ever need to stop guarding their tongue. As much as more and more good things hopefully will be coming out of your tongue, presumably, as long as you're living on earth, you will need to exercise restraint in the use of your tongue. So he's thinking, I'm religious, I'm faithfully serving God. What he's not doing is guarding his tongue bridling what he says. And, and I want to pause here and, and make this maybe a little easier or maybe a little harder than you think it might be. James is not saying you have to perfectly bridle. In chapter 3, he makes it quite clear. Only a complete, mature, and perfect man can completely control his tongue. The, the verbal forces that were actively doing this restraining, the, the way of checking whether you're doing this, can I say I am regularly... Restraining, holding back, directing, guarding my words. But also notice it's done in the context of religion. I know that everyone here and every unbeliever you know in the right context does exactly this. How often people have thought, man, I'd wish I could tell my boss what I think of him, but I won't. Because I don't want to get fired. We all think things that we don't say simply because we don't want others to think we're terrible people. But this is in the context of religion, so I'll, I'll qualify it this way. How often do you guard, restrain, exercise control over your tongue as an act of service to God? Not for the fear of man or the fear of the consequences, but because there's a living God who birthed you, who who you're serving, who you're loving. That's the measurement. It's not perfect accomplishment, but it's also not just, yeah, sometimes I don't say what I'm thinking. Well, we all do that. But do you do it because there's a living God? Do you do it when no one's around? That would be the question. You're restraining your tongue as an act of your worship and devotion to God. And, you, and that might even change how you do it. Perhaps before, you thought to yourself, I wish I could tell my boss what I think. And now you say, it's good that I don't tell my boss what I think. God is pleased that I don't tell my boss what I think. So even in one of the same action, your motivations might change. Okay. And this is an important concept to belabor because we live in a culture that's all about self-expression and assumes that any sort of repression, any sort of restraint causes you to be inauthentic, causes you to not be your real self. And so you just need to let the world know what you think. Speak your heart. Speak your mind. Social media will give you many platforms to do this, to tell everyone exactly what you think. And here James says, bridle your tongue. Be slow to speak. That's the Christian virtue. That's the Christian virtue. And if your understanding of selfhood conflicts with this, then no, repression's bad. Repent 
and believe the truth that God says you will always need to exercise self-control and repress your words. Always. As long as you're in the flesh living in this world. So, he does not bridle his tongue. Turn, turn briefly to Matthew 12. James is making this a big point. He's going to say, if you don't do this, your religion's worthless. That's a pretty big statement. And I think you and I may be tempted to not believe him. Surely James is over-speaking the matter. But as usual, James' teaching is piggybacking directly off of Jesus' public teaching. He's echoing what our Lord taught. So I'll ask you while we read Matthew 12, whether you think James is exaggerating or amplifying what Jesus our Lord said. Notice a similar context. Hearers and doers right into this. Matthew 12, 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. I ask you, do you think James is exaggerating, amplifying, or saying it any more forcefully than our Lord Jesus did? No. He's completely in step with Jesus' teaching. James is not saying anything fundamentally new. Yes, he's blunt. Yes, he's direct. He is echoing precisely what our Lord taught. Turn back to James now. <clears throat> so what a man does, you're blank here, we all must be slow to speak. He's, he's echoing, he's developing that thought. Being slow to speak means exercising restraint, giving consideration before you speak. As I said two weeks ago, this is something fundamentally I'm preaching to myself first and foremost. I talk, I talk a lot, I talk quickly. And, and, and we all need to be, and Jeremy needs to be slow to speak. Slow to speak. And, and you'll remember that in Galatians 5, 22 to 23, the fruit of the Spirit, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. This is in keeping with that notion of the Spirit's growing control of my life. I'm restraining, I'm disciplining, I'm giving thought to, I'm not acting purely impulsively to my speech. Second point here, an unbridled tongue can do all manner of evil. James doesn't tell us what particular verbal sins we're to avoid. He assumes our heart will produce plenty of them that will require restraint. Let me name a few. An unbridled tongue can slander and gossip. James will deal with that in chapter 4. An unbridled tongue can boast and brag. James will deal with that also in chapter 4. An unbridled tongue can speak angry, harmful words. He's dealt with that here. He'll deal with that in chapter 3 and chapter 4. An unbridled tongue can lie and deceive. I don't think James deals with that in this letter, but certainly other parts of Scripture do. An unbridled tongue can speak foul, corrupt, perverse things. An unbridled tongue can entice others to sin. It can flatter. It can tear people down. There's all manner of evil that an unbridled tongue can achieve. In fact, turn over to chapter 3. Give you a preview of where we'll be a little later this summer. 
James has a lot to say about the power of an unbridled tongue. If you're wondering, well, why does James make such a big deal out of the tongue? It's not only because our Lord Jesus does, but he's getting ready to say a whole lot more. Chapter 3, verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways, but if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder. Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Yes, James thinks we need to restrain our tongue. He's well aware of the panoply of destruction, corruption, and damage an unbridled tongue can yield. So back to our text. We all must be slow to speak. Because an unbridled tongue can do all manner of evil. So that's what he does. He also does something else. Notice how James assumes he's technically he's not doing something, but he's doing something else. But what he's doing is not doing it, so that's what he's doing. Uh, okay. What does he do? He actually deceives his own heart. Notice how these are assumed. There's no case where he doesn't bridle his tongue, but he doesn't deceive his heart. The, the equation is this. If you think you're pleasing God... If you think you're serving God, if you think you're religious, and you're not in the process of regularly bridling your tongue for his sake, you're doing something else, and that is deceiving yourself. If the first two things are true, I think I'm doing well. I mean, you can realize you're not bridling your tongue, be convicted, and not think you're doing a great job serving God, and now you're not self-deceived. But if your self-evaluation is, I'm, I'm doing all right, I'm religious, and you're also not governing your tongue for the Lord's sake, this next thing is true. You're deceiving your own heart. You're deceiving your own heart. And so here's, here's the thing to understand. Self-deception about our state and our salvation is a real possibility. The Bible in many places brings this out. And my goodness, in talking to people, we don't want to believe this. Again, getting back to autonomous individualism, people, I know I'm saved. I know I know the Lord. Don't you think self-deceived people say that too? The, what's the point of self-deception if you're insisting, I couldn't self-deceive myself? Self-deception is a real possibility the Bible puts forward. We need to do, hear well, listen well. Many on that day say, Lord, Lord. Not few, many. Now we've got a clear criteria for measurement. This isn't sub subjective navel-gazing. But it's the second time in this passage James considers self-deception. It's the man who sees himself and he goes away and he forgets. And here, the person who thinks they're doing well, isn't bridling their tongue, is self-deceived. They're not deceived by Satan. They're not deceived by the world. They deceive themselves because inside every one of us is the desire to think we're doing better than we are. We naturally want to flatter ourselves. We naturally want to tell us 
selves that our, our failings aren't that big of a deal. If you really understood what I've gone through, the day I've had, if you really understood my wife, or my husband, or my boss, so then you'd understand. It's not that, and James says, if you think you are faithfully serving God, and if you are not regularly governing, restraining your tongue, you are deceiving your own heart. These aren't hard to understand or interpret words. And we need to hear this. Self-deception is a real possibility. It's a real possibility. Because, and this is one of James' central points in the book, our beliefs and our actions must conform to each other. Imperfectly, but in a real sense. We always act out what we believe in the moment. Always. Our actions always reveal in the moment what we believed, what we valued, what we worshipped, what we trusted in, what we desired. It's always the case. Always, always, always. And so James says, look, if you, if you think you're doing well in religion, and that would involve all the externals. You're coming on Sunday. You're helping out in Awana. You're doing your memory verses. You're, but you're not bridling your tongue. You're deceiving yourselves. Here, I'll, I'll give you another test. Two weeks ago, we addressed this topic. Two weeks ago, we talked about the tongue. And I tried to talk with some of my own convictions. You don't need to raise your hand. If you were convicted two weeks ago, what'd you do? What'd you put into practice? Because last week's passage tells us what to make of the fact if we didn't. Right? If you were convicted two weeks ago, man, I do need to control my tongue. And if you... The last part, I'm going to read it right now, Bennett. The last section of this passage. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. So here's two weeks later. How many of us may have begun to do that? How many of us may have begun to do that? And so if you see that, go back to the mirror, take another good look again, and this time apply do. Put into practice. Put into practice. Beliefs and actions must conform to each other. Which brings us then point C to what a man truly is. What a man truly is. This person's religion is worthless. Vain. Empty of no value. I think it means at least one thing and quite possibly two things. One, his service and devotion to God is unacceptable. God is not pleased by his service and devotion. Turn, turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? 
I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Because of their unrepentant sin, their hands are full of blood, whatever that means, whatever particular sins and oppressions and wickedness they're doing, they're not dealing with them, and they're trying to engage in religion. This is, in fact, exactly what the Pharisees tried to do, is it not? Tons of external formal religion, no inward change of heart. This man's religion is worthless. Is worthless. If, if you are not endeavoring by faith to restrain your words and your tongue for God's sake and not simply for your boss's approval or others, if you're, if you're not doing this, whatever else you're doing to serve the Lord is worthless, is vain. It's, it's what James says. Additionally, Beyond simply saying your external worship is unacceptable, it may also well mean that this man's faith itself is false. Because when you put worthless next to the word religion in the Bible, frequently it speaks of idolatry and false religion. Acts 14, 15, as Paul calls upon the men to repent, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain or worthless, same word, things to the living God. There it means they're idols, right? 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, same word, worthless, and you are still in your sins. So at best, this person's worship of God is unacceptable, and at worst, it's false. The Pharisees are a perfect example of this. Um, now, before we get to our second point, I don't want to leave you here. I want to try to give you some practical instruction on how to maybe start making a change. If you are convicted, if you're seeing yourself in the mirror, think, yeah, I guess I need to rein in my tongue, and, I, and I'm there with you. I'm there with you. Don't minimize the stakes. Jesus speaks with the same level of severity and significance. Here are some suggestions on what you can do. If you're seeing yourself in the mirror, if you're seeing I need to do something, first, commit now to make this a prayer priority, a priority of your own spiritual growth. Commit that throughout the week you'll be coming back to this topic. And, and have a conversation with someone who knows you well your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, your close friends, and ask them, do I strike you as someone who gives thought before I speak? Do I strike you as one who restrains my tongue? How often do I say things that you think I ought not to say? And, and make sure you let them know. I, I really want to know what you think. Here's another good one that is really convicting for me. <laughs> when you speak wrongly in any of the ways I've enumerated, Go address that to the people who heard you. Few things are more humbling than going to your children and saying, 
Daddy spoke in anger. I'm sorry you heard that. Or telling someone you gossip to, I shouldn't have told you that about them. I'm sorry. Please don't think evil of the person I told you that about. I should not have done that. That's a good way to check, put it in check. When God shows you you've spoken in a way you ought, will you go and address that to the people who heard? Also, by implication, if you've become, begun to become a forgetful hearer, you need to go back and look in the mirror of God's word. See yourself. One, one of the things that I find helpful is that the English word confess and the Greek word behind it share the same word makeup. They mean to agree with. Confession is when I agree with God. If you think about the way sin works, when I sin, my heart entices me with a lie, and I believe the lie, and then I act on the lie. And repentance is that inward change of disposition where I turn from the lie to God's truth. So let's give a simple example. I thought it was okay and appropriate and deserving for me to speak evil of my neighbor to somebody else. Did you know what so-and-so did? I want to, they deserve for others to know what a jerk they are. And so I believe that lie, and I tell Jacob the bad report about um, Daniel, right? <laughs> no particular reason. And I do that, right? So get the flow. My heart sold a lie to me. I believed the lie. I acted on the lie. This is why our actions always flow out of our beliefs. Repentance is when I go, ah, I should not have done that. I believed a lie, and I turn and believe the truth. Confession is what I'm now able to do, believing God's truth. God, you say I shouldn't speak evil of my brother. I agree. I confess. I'm now able to agree with what God says. Well, if you want to develop your fight against a particular sin, find out more of what God has to say about it so you got more to agree with. And you go to the Proverbs. I went through the Proverbs with different colored pencils for different themes. Blue was for the tongue. About half of my book of Proverbs is blue. There is a lot of truth for you to agree with and confess with God on speech. It's no small topic biblically. So there's something you can do. You want to go back to that mirror and see yourself? Hold up different portions of God's word about your tongue and speech to yourself and agree with God about them. Maybe memorize them. Maybe put them in little three-by-five cards. Here's another one. Pray before encounters where you suspect you may have a difficult time holding your tongue. Serena and I used to show up to our Bible study five, ten minutes early so we could pray in the parking lot. Because there, I was challenged by the Bible study leader. I was just talking too much. And it wasn't even there was corrupt things. It was just I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about blessing others there. And he said, Jeremy, you're a seminary student. You get this all the time. Some of these people, this is their, their one this is their most intense and personal encounter with the word this week. And you're talking about good stuff, but man, I, I want to know what they think. I want to draw them out. Are you giving any thought to them? Short answer, nope, I wasn't. And so we'd get there before the study, and I'd say, Lord, help me to put a guard on my tongue so that I only speak what I think will actually be a blessing to other people, not simply because I'm interested in it. So if you can identify places and times where you know you're going to be tempted to speak in ways you shouldn't. Pray beforehand and do an after-report evaluation afterwards. On the drive home, how do you think I did tonight, Serena? How'd I do? For those of you who are engaged on social media, here's a, here's a convicting one. Grab, grab a loved one, grab someone you respect, and go read through your posts for the last month. Those are good checks. I'm sure you could come up with more. But given the importance of this topic, I don't want to leave you helpless. 
We, we need to be engaged in bridling our tongues. We won't do it perfectly. James isn't assuming that. In chapter 3, he says only the most mature people could. But we need to be trying to do it for the glory of God. We need to be trying to do it for God's glory. Okay? We'll begin point two. We are not going to make it all the way through this. But that's fine. First mark of true religion, a bridled tongue. Second mark, a compassionate heart. Compassionate heart. Verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. I'll give you, by the way, point three, which isn't even developed here, a holy life. We're going to begin, though. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. We want service and devotion to God. Then his side is clean, uncontaminated. Point one. Only non-hypocritical devotion pleases God. Only non-hypocritical devotion pleases God. Our devotion needs to match our inward life. Words we saw Jesus say come out of the abundance of our heart. And so God does want us gathering on Sunday, and God does want us taking communion, and God does want us singing songs, and he wants us to be baptized, and he wants all that to reflect what's going on in the inward man. Turn over to chapter 3. I'll try to point out to you this point here in verses 9 and 10. Actually, we'll start in verse 8. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. So here's the idea. You and I have never seen God. The closest thing you've ever seen to God is the person sitting next to you who bears his image. Or the person on the other side of you, or any human being that you've never met. And James is saying there's a clear hypocrisy when with our tongues we ascribe praise and love and glory and devotion to a God we have not seen, we know of him through his word, but our eyes have not seen, and yet the people who bear his mark and his stamp and his image, we curse with our tongues, we belittle, we berate, we speak with anger. Well, that, which, which one shows what you really think about God? It's hypocrisy, and James calls it out. So the devotion, the religion that is acceptable to God is non-hypocritical. And you think back to the Gospels, who is Jesus most angry with? The Pharisees. Why? They were hypocrites. They were outwardly clean. Inwardly, they were dead man's bones. So, pure religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. So first point, only non-hypocritical devotion pleases God. I'm going to try to cover the next point, and then we'll, be, we'll call it quits here. So we'll just do uh, 2A2. He expects his children to reflect his character. He expects his children to reflect his character. Now I want to pause here and ask a question. Why does James pick these three axes to evaluate our faith? He picks the tongue, 
visiting orphans and widows and keeping yourself unstained from the world. He doesn't address sexual purity. He doesn't address evangelism. He doesn't address anxiety and hope and courage and fear. He could have. Why, why these three? What is the flow of this thought? Is it arbitrary? I don't think so. I think the connection is the title to which he gives God. Before God the Father. Where does James call God Father earlier? Well, in verse 18. Of his own, oh, sorry, not in verse 18. In verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I think you'll see, in the few minutes we have left, that all of these three attributes that he's measuring us by are seen and found in the character of God our Father. There is a certain like father-like-son logic at play here. The Father of lights, in verse 17, birthed us by his word. So he's our Father. And his word was the instrument by which he gave us life. His word is called the word of truth, in verse 18. In verse 22, it's the implanted word. No, sorry, in verse 21, it's the implanted word. In 22, it's just the word. In 25, it's the perfect law, the law of liberty. Our Father speaks a word to us that gives us life. He birthed us by it. It frees us. It governs us. It, it is implanted and bears fruit in us. Any idea why then God might be interested in, about our words and how we use them? James has just been emphasizing the instrumentality of God's word. His word for us is life. Look at Here's our point. Our Father's words to us are life and truth. Of his own will, he birthed us by his word. His worth beget life in us. His word is implanted in our hearts. Implication is bearing fruit. His word is perfect. It's a law of freeing liberty. Our, our, God, our father is a talking God. And he's made talking sons and daughters. And the way we talk ought to reflect our father's heart and nature. And James knows there's no way we're going to do that unless we're intentionally restraining our tongues so that our tongues would give life, that our tongues would build up, that our tongues would bless. It's, it's, he's demonstrated the power of God's words. that He speaks. If you're a Christian, God's word birthed you by the agency of the Holy Spirit. You're a child of the word. And your father cares greatly about your words, about my words. Our father's words are life to us. Second, he gifted us with life when we are dead and helpless. And we'll look at next week, visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. But verse 17 and 18, or even before that, what was our prior state? Verse 14, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. Then when desire has conceived, it gives, forth, gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. We are on that track, every one of us. And as a demonstration of God's good gifts to us, verse 17, or verse 18 actually, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. We were dead and lifeless of his own will, not because we asked him to, not because we called out, not because we raised a hand, 
bowed a knee of his own will, he birthed us. If that is not the perfect example of taking compassion on the weak and the powerless and the helpless, I don't know what is. And so it's only fitting then that God's children reflect his heart and we take pity on the powerless and the vulnerable and the weak and the poor, just as our Father took compassion on us. You see, he gifted us with life when we were dead and helpless. And point three, he birthed us by his word that we might be holy. He birthed us by his word that we might be holy. And that's tied up in that phrase, first fruits. So again, to summarize, why these three axes? Because they're three aspects of God's character and his desire for us that he's just enumerated in the previous section. God speaks a true life-giving word. He wants us to do the same. God was compassionate on his enemies who are powerless, desperate, weak, undeserving. And now he wants us to give ourselves to and to care about and be compassionate for people like that. Third, he birthed us by his word that might be holy. He birthed us, according to verse 18, that we could be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And the idea behind first fruits is set apart holiness, the best. I'll give you one text for this. Numbers 18.12. All the best of the oil and all the best of the wine and of the grain and the first fruits of what they give to the Lord, I give to you. The best and the first fruits are considered to be one and the same thing. He's talking to the Levites as the people make tithes and offerings. God birthed us with a purpose that we might be holy, that we might be set apart for him, which is another way of saying that we would be unstained from this sinful, fallen world. So why these three axes? Because they reflect God's character and his plan for us. This is why James is viewing them. He's also hitting these three axes because they're measurable. They're measurable, clearly. The Apostle Paul will focus on doctrinal examinations. In 1 Corinthians 15, if you deny the resurrection, you're, you're playing for the other team, he says, in essence. It's my paraphrase. There's a doctrinal test. 1 John has a doctrinal test. Whoever denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, this is of the Antichrist. So there are doctrinal tests to see if people are Christians. Someone asked me, hey, Jeremy, do you think Mormons are Christians? Do Mormons believe Jesus is God with a capital G? Well, not really. Do Mormons believe in justification by faith alone? No. Okay, then based on those two doctrines, the denial of those two doctrines, I would say no. Anyone who denies the deity of Christ, who denies that we're saved by faith, is not a Christian. James gives us practical examples and examination tests, and they're perfectly in keeping with Jesus' teaching when he insists you will know them by their fruit. No good tree can bear bad fruit. You know who said this. So James is giving us another type of test. It's not perfectly bridling your tongue, but it's being engaged in that process. It's not constantly, without cease, visiting widows and orphans in their affliction. We'll look at that next week. But it is about having a compassionate heart for such people and giving of yourselves to them. And it does matter with how we relate to the world. So I'm going to close in order of prayer. Invite the worship team up for our closing song. And... And just challenge you, if you've been convicted this morning, and if you were convicted two weeks ago, be doers, or by lunchtime today, you will forget. I will forget. Commit now. 
here to change, to put into practice, to be an effectual doer. James says, you will be blessed. I want that blessing, and I want that blessing for you. Let's pray. Lord God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see, but oh Lord God, give us energy and conviction to act. Oh Lord, that you would give us the zeal, the passion, the self-discipline from your spirit that we might more and more be reigning in, restraining, bridling our tongues, not to please men, not because we fear men, but because we love you and do it as an act of service to you. Oh Lord God, help us to, to act and not forget. In Jesus' name, amen.